You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 12. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, we're at Lecture 12 today, Lesson 12, The Holy Spirit and Faith, first two chapters of Book 3 of the Institutes. So we'd like to spend a little bit of time thinking about Book 3, its title, what it means, and how it relates to the first two books, and then we'll get into the topic of the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, and the topic of faith, chapter 2. We'll use this, this diagram that I have put uh, on the overhead uh, as we uh, do that. Uh, but first of all, uh, the prayer, again from uh, Calvin, as we uh, begin to think about these important topics today. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as we are prone to every kind of wickedness and are easily led away to imitate it, when there is any excuse for going astray and any opportunity is offered, O grant that being strengthened by the help of thy Spirit, we may continue in purity of faith, and that what we have learned concerning thee, that thou art a spirit, may so profit us, that we may worship thee in spirit and with a sincere heart, and never turn aside after the corruptions of the world, nor think we can deceive thee. But may we so devote our souls and bodies to thee, that our life may in every part of it testify that we are a pure and holy sacrifice to Thee, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Book 3, The Way in Which We Receive the Grace of Christ, What Benefits Come to Us from It, and What Effects Follow. Remember that Book one was the knowledge of God the Creator, and book two, the knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ. Actually, as we think about that, we may want to say that the first two books give us the revelation of God the Creator and the revelation of God the Redeemer, but strictly speaking, knowledge of God does not come until book three, because until we have the Holy Spirit applying uh, the truth of the Bible to our hearts, as we find taking place in chapter two of book three, the chapter on faith, there may be revelation, but there's not true knowledge. There is God's revealing himself, but that revelation is not received profitably until uh, we come uh, to book three, Chapter 2, the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. Now, the grace of Christ is book 2. Christ 
this book too. The way is Christ being applied to us by the Holy Spirit through faith. But as we think of the way that we receive the grace of Christ, then we're sent back to book two to realize that the grace of Christ is set forth uh, for us in book two. His, his incarnation is becoming united to us and his life and his death. Uh, the grace of Christ is the theme of book two, but Calvin says as long as Christ remains, and these are his words, outside of us, as long as Christ remains outside of us, all he has done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. That's 3-1-1. So, in a sense, Calvin is saying that uh, book two uh, is, is useless. The grace of Christ that we studied in such detail in book two is of no value to us and no benefit to us as long as Christ remains outside of us. Christ came into the world lived and died, but all that is outside of us until we come uh, to uh, book three. As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story because there is book three, and uh, we'll have in book three Calvin's description of the union of Christ with the believer. There is a kind of twofold union with Christ that takes place. In book two, there is the union of Christ with humanity in his incarnation. And in book three, there is the union of the individual believer with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Calvin has told us that Christ is not, quote, a private person. That is, what he did, what he suffered, and what he accomplished, he did not do for himself alone, uh, but uh, all that he was and all that he did was done uh, for his people. So we come then to the way in which we receive uh, the grace of Christ. Calvin says, therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. So how do we get from, from book two, the objective Christ, to book three, Christ dwelling within us? And uh, the answer that Calvin gives is that we get there by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the chief work of the Spirit is faith. So it is the work of the Spirit producing faith in us that brings the objective Christ uh, within us uh, to dwell as we are united with him and he with us. The title of book three speaks about the way, 
and then the benefits that come to us from it. Uh, the way is through the work of the Spirit, taking Christ and by faith implanting Christ in our hearts. The benefits, what benefits come to us from that work of the Spirit, those benefits are twofold. Regeneration, the new birth, the new life, and justification. Now, this is Calvin's order, and it seems a little strange to us that he's going to deal with regeneration, or we might say sanctification, before he deals with justification, but uh, he tells us why he does that. And in due time, we'll come uh, to that uh, point. What effects follow? It's a little hard to know what Calvin means here, I think. The benefits, that is a more comprehensive term, and that would be everything that happens as a result of our union with Christ. Salvation and eternal blessedness is how Calvin expresses it. It is the more comprehensive category, the benefits that come under which the effects can be included. So I don't think we should see two things so much as benefits, which include everything that Christ does for us. But effects are a particular way of looking at the benefits, and that would be actual holiness of life the way that we live in our day-by-day Christian lives illustrates the effects that come uh, into our lives and flow through our lives uh, because of the work of the Spirit in uniting uh, Christ uh, to us. Before uh, we look at uh, Calvin's treatment of the Holy Spirit, let's have a quick look at the contents of book three, uh, the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, uh, what um, benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. Uh, What is Calvin going to deal with uh, in this book? And here's a, a brief outline of book three. Chapter one, he'll talk about the Holy Spirit, who is the way. Chapter two, Faith, which is the chief work of the Spirit. Uh, Chapter 3, regeneration. He has a lot of words for this, as we'll see. We could call it sanctification, the new birth, and the Christian life, 3 through 10. And then comes to justification in 11 through 18, and we'll talk about why that unusual order. Uh, Then a chapter on Christian freedom, which Calvin feels is very essential to to guarantee the freedom of justification uh, by faith alone. Then a long chapter on prayer. And then, amazingly enough, finally comes to the doctrine that he is most famous for, and that is the doctrine of predestination or election, uh, which hasn't appeared earlier. Uh, We'll see when we come uh, to chapters 21 through 24 that Calvin keeps putting this off and uh, tells us at various places uh, in the first three books. I could talk about election at this point, but I'm not going to because it it fits better later, and we'll talk about why it fits better later. And then finally a chapter on 
resurrection, which is Calvin's treatment of eschatology. So that's an overview of uh, book three. Book four, of course, comes into uh, his treatment of the church, the sacraments, and civil government. Okay, let's look at uh, the chapter one of um, book three that we studied for today. It's Calvin's treatment of the Holy Spirit. Brief chapter. It was added in 1559 when Calvin devised the new um, arrangement of the Institutes uh, in his final edition. And uh, it's a very important chapter then uh, to set forth the um, points that uh, Calvin wants to make uh, in book uh, three. The person of the Holy Spirit, which includes the deity of the Spirit, uh, Calvin has already treated. Remember his, his treatment in book one, chapter 13, of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally God, equally God in three persons. But it is in book three and chapter one and the first section of chapter one that Calvin comes to the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit Calvin tells us here, is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. To Calvin, that is, is the chief work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. 3 one, one. You can think uh, back... Again, to the first uh, two books, book one, God the Creator, book two, God our Father in Christ, and uh, Christ is then described as the mediator between God and man and woman. Christ is the mediator between God and us. Remember, Calvin said, as we are created, as we were created, we were, we were too lowly to fellowship with God directly even before the fall. So there is mediation as sustenance, but after the fall, even more do we need a mediator because of our sin. And we have a mediator uh, who is Christ. And then in book three, the Holy Spirit is described as the bond which unites us to Christ. Christ is the mediator. The Holy Spirit is the bond which then unites us to Christ. We could think of it uh, this way as we think of Calvin's structure. Christ is the, is the agent of our redemption, but the Holy Spirit is the no less necessary agent of our redemption by whom Christ's redemption profits us. You might think of book two as the work of God in our behalf, focusing on the work of Christ, and book three 
the work of God in our behalf, focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the mediator between God and us, book two. The Holy Spirit is the bond between Christ and us, book three. So, in moving from, from book one to book two, we're not leaving the Trinity behind, God our Father in Christ. And in moving from book two to book three, we're not leaving the Father and the Son behind as we move to a book that focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. This is good Trinitarian theology. And you remember that uh, Calvin is structuring the Institutes according to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, book one, God the Son, book two, Holy Spirit, book three. But the Trinity is involved in all three books, so it's not a strict separation of book one, the Father, book two, the Son, book three, uh, the Holy Spirit. But... um, God is God, and even though in the economy of the Godhead there is particular work for each of the three persons, uh, the three persons are united in their work as well. When you look at book one, you get God the Creator. Look at book two, you get the Redeemer. Look at the title of book three. You don't have a a mention of the Holy Spirit. It's the way in which we receive the grace of Christ. So in the title, the Holy Spirit operates anonymously, although there is this first chapter, brief chapter, added in 1559 uh, to introduce us uh, more directly to the work of the Spirit. But it is not improper for the emphasis to be on the work of the Spirit and uh, not uh, undue attention to the Spirit himself. It seems to be the way the Trinity operates. And we find that in the Bible as well as in uh, Calvin's Institutes. When Calvin comes uh, to deal with the Doctrine of the Spirit, 113 for the deity of the Spirit, and now 3.1 for the work of the Spirit in relation to our salvation. It is pretty brief. Calvin, you recall from your reading, uh, gives us some scriptural titles that um, the Spirit uh, is given in the Scripture such as fire, and uh, deals uh, also with the word spirit. But uh, he doesn't do too much more than that. So it's a very brief, concise summary of the work of the Holy Spirit. But all of Book 3 is about the work of the Holy Spirit. So Calvin doesn't have to extend Chapter 1 unduly, because when he comes to faith, repentance, justification, and so on. He's still dealing with the work of 
the spirit. It's interesting that some theologians, notably B.B. Uh, Warfield, have focused on this as the, the primary contribution that Calvin has made to Christian theology. And Warfield calls uh, John Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Warfield says the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is a gift from John Calvin to the Church of Christ. And I think there's much to be said for Warfield's view that Calvin's primary contribution is to emphasize the work of the Spirit. But it's interesting to see how Calvin does it because he does it not so much by directly talking about the Holy Spirit with a long chapter on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but he brings the Spirit's activity uh, in uh, to his theology uh, again and again. We've already had this in Book 1, where the testimony of the Holy Spirit is required uh, for us to accept the authority of the Scripture. So, since Calvin moved so quickly from the Holy Spirit to faith, we'll do the same thing. And this is a long chapter, as you know. Calvin spends a good bit of time dealing with uh, faith. Calvin is very fond of definitions, and usually he gives us a very clear definition and then exegetes that definition. Sometimes he'll give several definitions of the same uh, thing, as we'll see when we come to his uh, chapters on regeneration. But there is a very clear definition of faith in 327. I've quoted in the syllabus. Firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what faith is. So, let's just take that definition now and uh, work uh, through it uh, in order to um, understand what Calvin is talking about in these chapters. Uh, we'll, we'll take it apart um, point by point. Uh, faith is a firm and certain knowledge. Let's don't think of firm and certain at the moment, but just jump to the word knowledge. Faith is, is knowledge. Here, uh, Calvin is uh, concerned uh, to reject the implicit faith of the scholastics, medieval theologians argued that it was enough for Christians to have implicit faith. That is, people did not really have to understand anything virtually of Christian truth or Christian doctrine, but implicit faith was submission to the authority of the church was enough that the church knew and held these things and all one had to do was to acknowledge that the church was right without um, understanding what it was that uh, the church was teaching a pious submission to the collective wisdom of the church. That was implicit faith, and uh, that was 
a teaching that was set forth uh, by the teachers of the church uh, in, the, in the medieval period. You might uh, say it was just believe. Don't try to understand, just believe. Believe what the church says. But Calvin uh, rejects that. He says faith doesn't rest on ignorance. That would be, implicit faith would be allowing faith to rest on ignorance. Faith is knowledge. Faith knows something. Faith doesn't rest on ignorance, 322, nor does it rest on reverence for the church, 323, but it consists in the knowledge of God in Christ, 323. Faith consists in knowledge of God in Christ. We possess, put it in other words, as Calvin does in 322, an explicit recognition of the divine goodness. We know something. We know something about God. We know something about Christ. And we know that God is good. Now, it's true that Calvin does say that many things are implicit for us. He doesn't totally reject the idea of implicit faith. He doesn't want the definition of faith to be implicit faith because he says we know something. Faith involves knowledge. But he says that in many things, in most things, actually, we believe, not because we understand, but uh, because we believe. In these matters, we can do nothing better than suspend judgment and hearten ourselves to hold unity with the church. So it almost sounds like uh, in 323, Calvin is reverting to the implicit faith of the scholastics. He says in many things and most things, we can't understand those things. And uh, what we do is to suspend judgment and hearten ourselves to hold unity with the church. But the difference is this. Calvin says there is some knowledge. It's not that in everything we simply say whatever the church says we believe. We have to understand something. We have to know something. And that is uh, that um, we know that that God is and that in Christ God has poured out his mercy and blessing upon us. That is what we know. But in so many things, uh, areas where uh, we cannot fully understand, uh, we then do suspend judgment and hold unity with the church. I think one way to put this is that Calvin believes that Christians have true knowledge. Faith involves true knowledge, but limited knowledge. True, but limited knowledge. Certainly not exhaustive knowledge. So, in many things, uh, we reverently accept that which we cannot know. 
but there are some things that we do know. Right? Uh, first part of the definition, faith is knowledge. And what I've said already would lead us into the second statement. Faith is knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. Calvin descends uh, by degrees from general to particular to arrive at the focus of faith. Uh, He tells us that, in one sense, the whole Word of God is the focus of faith, the object of faith. Uh, Christians believe every word that God has has spoken. Faith is certain that God is true in all things. Or, put it another way, as Calvin does, take away the word and no faith will remain. So, Christian looks at the word of God and says, yes, it's true. I believe it to be true. So, believers embrace the word of God in its totality. As we have seen in book one, testimony of the Holy Spirit enables us Uh, to recognize the authority of the Bible and to embrace it as true. But Calvin says, faith seeks a word within the word. There is a, a word within the word. There is a message within the totality of the Bible that is the particular focus of faith because our hearts are not aroused to faith in every word of God. There are words of judgment in the Bible. Yes, they're true. There are words of uh, fact about uh, the history of Israel. All that's true. But our faith doesn't respond to those words, but to another word, even though we embrace the whole word of God is true. There is a message within the Bible that faith seeks, and uh, that message is God's benevolence or his mercy. Three, two, seven, or as Calvin puts it in three, two, six, it's a word about Christ, who is the goal of our faith. Or 3.2.29, the promise of mercy is the proper goal of our faith. So within all the words of the Bible, and all the words of the Bible do point to this one word of the Bible, but the heart of the Bible is Christ. And what we're told about Christ is his love, his benevolence, and his mercy. So that is the message that faith seeks and finds in the Bible, the single goal of faith is the mercy of God. That's 3.243 in the list of texts that I've given uh, in the outline. The single goal of faith is the mercy of God, which to which it ought, so to speak, to look with both eyes. So we take both our, our eyes and focus them upon the single goal of faith, uh, which is the mercy of God in Christ. So, to sum up uh, this point, faith hearkens 
to the different parts of God's Word, doesn't ignore other parts of God's Word, and certainly doesn't reject other parts of God's Word. So it hearkens to the whole Word, but it rests upon the promises of mercy, which, however, is not one theme among many, but is, if we understand properly, the one message of the Bible. All right, faith is knowledge. Faith is knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. And now we'll go back and pick up those first words of the definition. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. This part of Calvin's treatment of faith has caused some confusion, I think, and has caused some uh, concern. But we need to understand that what Calvin is doing here in the definition is describing faith as it ought to be, not as it often is. Because Christians will say, well, sometimes my knowledge is not firm and certain. Uh, My knowledge is... I. Faith is weak and it uh, fluctuates. And uh, does Calvin then think that is not faith? Is that something else? Is faith always firm and certain? Calvin says there is no right faith except when we dare with tranquil hearts to stand in God's sight. But as we read through... um, all of Calvin's treatment of faith in the Institutes. And as we look at the commentaries, uh, we realize that when Calvin is defining faith, he's he's defining full faith, uh, not uh, weak faith and not faith that is under attack. But Calvin certainly recognizes that the faith that we possess as Christians is often of the latter kind. I think he doesn't want to put in the definition of faith what weak faith is. He wants to describe full faith and firm faith and strong faith. And so uh, he uses the words firm and certain knowledge. But existential faith, his definition of existential faith, that is faith as it actually exists in us, is often under attack and uh, is often weak and fluctuating. One of the best places to see this, Calvin recognizes that our faith is not perfect, is the commentary on Mark 9.24, where you have the words, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you have faith and unfaith brought together uh, in one person, uh, in one passage. And Calvin says the two statements, I believe, and help my unbelief, may appear to contradict each other. But there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers, that God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us is to recognize believers on account of a small portion of faith. 
So there you get uh, Calvin quite uh, willing and, and eager to recognize that uh, believers uh, do not possess strong and vigorous and triumphant faith always. There's always that prayer, help my unbelief, that we must utter because our faith is not perfect. You can also look at the Institutes in Book 4 on the sacraments when Calvin uh, says that the sacraments sustain, nourish, confirm, and increase our faith. So faith grows. It's never fully grown in a Christian in this life. And in his words there in 4.14.7, Calvin says the reasons which some are accustomed to object against the opinion are too weak and trifling. They say that our faith cannot be made better if it's already good. For it is not faith unless it leans unshaken, firm, and steadfast upon God's mercy. It would have been better for them uh, to pray with the apostles that the Lord increase their faith than confidently to pretend such perfection of faith as no one of the children of men ever attain or ever will attain in this life. So that's probably enough to show that Calvin doesn't mean to say by putting in his definition the words firm and certain that if it's not firm and certain, it's not faith. So faith can exist and does exist along with unbelief. And Calvin says, too, that faith is indeed often under attack as we live our Christian lives. Calvin has not read the Psalms in vain when he writes his commentary on the Psalms in the introduction to that which he calls to the readers. He talks about griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and anxieties. Now, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. And Calvin knows that's um, what we're all about, too. We, we find ourselves in all of those words uh, that Calvin has used there. Faith is often under attack. It's under attack from our own uh, unbelief. 3.2.17 Believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. And we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. And then in 3.2.18, he says it this way, Therefore, the godly heart feels in itself a division because it is partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness, partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity, partly rests upon the promise of the gospel, partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity partly rejoices at the expectation of life and partly shudders at death. Calvin, the, the rhetorician, is at work there in 
using words to move us and uh, to instruct us and I think really does speak to our condition because each one of us would recognize the truthfulness of, of these words. But when all is said and done, the outcome is never in doubt. There is a struggle, a fearsome struggle with doubt, but that struggle is itself not in doubt. Doubt does not mortally wound believers. 3.2.21 It wounds us, but it doesn't mortally wound us. For the fears and cares of the elect regularly give way to a secret joy sent from above. Commentary on Psalm 94, 18. We go back uh, to 3, 2, 21. Thus the godly mind, however strange the ways in which it is vexed and troubled, finally surmounts all difficulties and never allows itself to be deprived of assurance of divine mercy. And in that same section 3.2.21, there's a very telling illustration that Calvin uses, when therefore faith is shaken, it's like a strong soldier forced by the violent blow of a spear to move his foot and give ground a little. When faith itself is wounded, it is as if the soldier's shield were broken at some point from the thrust of the spear, but not in such a manner as to be pierced. So, Doubt can shake us. It can force us to give ground. It can even uh, threaten us more uh, seriously uh, by wounding our shield. But it doesn't destroy us. It doesn't overcome us because the result of this struggle uh, is not in doubt. So we might, uh, we might say uh, that uh, for Calvin then, existing faith, the definition of existing faith, you won't find this in the institutes in these precise words, but taking all I've said, existing faith is something like this, a steady and certain knowledge, God's benevolence toward us, invariably attacked, by vicious doubts and fears over which it is finally victorious. Doubts and fears uh, may be the normal experience of believers, but it is not normative, but descriptive. In other words, it's not what should be, it describes what is. The normative definition is the first one that Calvin gives. And the descriptive definition of our faith is the one that I have created here in point five. 
unbelief is not part of faith, but you might say an interruption of faith. So in the definition, Calvin does not want to include unbelief. It's part of the definition. Unbelief interrupts faith and attacks faith, but uh, it cannot triumph over faith. Having said all that, this means that for Calvin, faith includes assurance. A person has faith, a person has assurance. Uh, the two are part of the same thing. In uh, many theologies, two different things, including the Westminster Confession of Faith. Faith is one thing, assurance is something else. But uh, for Calvin, they're both to be included in the same definition because they belong together. Let's think about that for a few minutes. Faith includes assurance. Assurance applies not only to the present, but also to future immortality, Calvin says. That is, assurance leads me to know that not only am I saved now, but I'll be saved forever. It doesn't apply just to this moment, but it applies to every moment to come. How do we gain that assurance? First of all, Calvin tells us how we don't get it. And he says, assurance does not rest on moral conjecture. That means that we do not gain this assurance by looking at the quality of our Christian lives or even looking at our Christian lives at all and saying we're good people, we do good works, and therefore we must be saved, or to put it another way, we must be elect. And so uh, we rest uh, on that. Our Christian lives and our good works have a place in assurance, but only as a prop of the second order. It's not the first thing to look at. To look at uh, fruit, you might say, in your life. Now, that's not um, what you look at first when you're thinking about uh, assurance. It's a prop of the second order or, as Galvin puts it in other places, an accessory or inferior aid. Now, Calvin doesn't deny that there is some value in seeing God's work in our lives, fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There's some value in that. And uh, there are verses in the Bible that say that. We know we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. And... Uh, we see love for each other in our lives, and it's an indication uh, that that love has come from God. And uh, therefore, we read into our love for each other our status as, as Christians. But Calvin is afraid if we focus on that, if we spend too much time on that, we'll get into some serious trouble. Because what if we don't see much fruit? And what if we don't love the brethren? 
some occasion or some day our love is not there. And fruit seems to be lacking. Uh, we can pretty easily fall into uh, despair uh, if we focus on moral conjecture as the basis for our assurance. The basis for our assurance is rather, Calvin says, the gospel. Calvin's fullest treatment of assurance will be in uh, 3.15. We'll come to that uh, when we study justification uh, by faith in which he will deal with assurance and Roman Catholic objections to the Protestant doctrine of assurance because uh, there was no possibility of assurance in medieval Catholic theology without some sort of direct revelation from God, which happened very infrequently. So, according to Calvin, the foundation of assurance is the gospel. Our works have a, a secondary role of confirmation, but assurance, like salvation, is based on faith and grace and not on works. Just um, comment on assurance in the Reformed tradition after Calvin, uh, particularly as we find it in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18. Reformed tradition has not always connected faith and assurance as Calvin did. In fact, as often not followed Calvin in this. Calvin saw that weak faith may and will produce weak assurance. If faith is weak, assurance is going to be weak. The solution then is greater faith. As faith grows, then assurance grows. But here's how the Confession of Faith puts it, chapter 18. Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, and the next word is important, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. See what that's saying. A person who truly believes in Jesus, loves him in sincerity, endeavors to walk in all good conscience before him, <clears throat> that person may have assurance. But the confession doesn't say that everyone will have assurance. Uh, Calvin would have expressed it differently. I think he would have said, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, will in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. So, I just wanted to point out a difference there, not um, actually try to say is Calvin right or are the Westminster divines right, but um, you can see that Calvin is much more concerned to link assurance with faith 
whereas the Westminster divines can see what looks like a very triumphant Christian who may or may not uh, then possess assurance that Calvin would say that person does indeed possess assurance. There is a problem in Calvin's uh, teaching, however, that uh, surfaces at this point, and that is the problem of transitory faith, which he deals with in 3.2.11. Because Calvin has wanted to say that true faith will always be victorious, and a Christian can have assurance based on faith, but Calvin also introduces something called transitory faith, which is temporary faith. And the problem you see now is, how do I know whether I have true faith or temporary faith? Can I, have, can I really have assurance if my faith could be transitory faith, could be temporary faith? And many articles and even several books have been written on this trying to uh, deal with uh, Calvin's understanding of transitory faith. It seems to me that uh, the best place to go for an answer here uh, is not to the Institutes where Calvin raises the issue, uh, but um, to his commentary on Acts 8.13 when he talks about uh, Simon who seemed to have faith but ultimately did not have faith and uh, Calvin describes some middle position between faith and mere pretense. So, in this section of his commentary on Acts, Calvin says there's faith and there's mere pretense. A mere pretense uh, is those who profess that they believe but who are laughing inwardly. In other words, people who know they don't believe. It's faith, people who believe, and there's mere pretense, uh, people who pretend to believe but know they don't believe. Or, as Calvin calls it there, gross hypocrisy. That's gross hypocrisy, mere pretense. But with Simon, he sees some sort of middle position. Those that think they do believe. Simon was not a true believer, but he was not... Um, just pretending to believe. Uh, he thought he believed. And uh, Calvin describes this as inward, but not gross hypocrisy. And Calvin recognizes in the commentary that there can be a process of self-deception in which an unbeliever can come to the place of thinking that he or she believes when really there is no true faith there. That is a self-deluding faith, which is similar to the faith of the elect. Similar to, but not exactly the same as, faith of the elect. Which means as you look at elect people, and as you look at people like Simon, their faith appears to be the same. But indeed isn't. The elect 
alone have that full assurance by which they're enabled to cry, Abba, Father, Calvin says in 3 to 11. But may still be a, a problem there, you see, because transitory faith seems like real faith to the person who has it, having deluded himself or herself to the extent that that person believes that it is uh, real faith, then how can there be assurance if we can be deceived in thinking that we have faith when we really don't have faith? Uh, one of the points that uh, Calvin makes uh, here is that biblical descriptions of temporary faith like in the case of Simon, are put in the Bible as means that God uses in our perseverance. In other words, just thinking about this problem alerts us to the fact that we need to eagerly pray uh, that our faith is indeed genuine faith and not transitory faith and not um, self-deluding faith. So the the problem, you might say, is part of the solution. God uses many, many things to enable us to persevere. And one of the things that he can use in enabling us to persevere is the, is the warning that faith must be genuine and not uh, self-deluding. At least it, it brings us to our knees in prayer uh, to ask God to make our faith real and not um, something that we have invented. So maybe the problem of assurance is still a bit of a problem there. But uh, we'll, come, we'll come to this again in Calvin's treatment of election because it comes up again, how, how can I know that I'm elect? And I think Calvin will give us some further help at that point. All right, let's uh, move on with our definition. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts. Now, we've got uh, a little more of the definition. Faith is more than common assent to gospel history. It is revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts. It's not simply, in other words, bare historical faith, just uh, shaking one's head over what the Bible says. Yes, it's true. It's true. Calvin opposes the Roman Catholic uh, distinction there uh, between uh, form and unformed faith. Roman Catholics taught that unformed faith was a kind of uh, bare perception, a preliminary intellectual faith, which was the first stage of faith and must uh, be completed by the infusion of the habit of love in order for it to be effective, that is, 
to become form faith. But for Kelvin, faith is more than common assent to the gospel history, and certainly Kelvin is not going to agree with the Catholic definition of form faith, which says faith must include love to be real faith. Faith produces love to God and to other people, but that is not part of the definition of faith. But faith is is more than common assent to gospel history, just uh, believing the facts of, of the Bible. It is more of the heart than of the brain and more of the disposition than of the understanding. So faith is more than just assent to facts. It is best described as persuasion or as recognition or as assurance. All of which I think uh, can be taken together to say that faith is more than intellectual assent. It's also, as we often say, trust. There is a personal relationship that is at the heart of faith. So it's not just saying yes to true biblical facts. It's being persuaded. It's recognizing the author. It's assurance of God's love to us. It's entering into a relationship uh, with the object of faith who is Christ. How does this transpire? It's through the Holy Spirit. That's the last part of uh, Calvin's uh, definition. Faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. Faith is a singular gift of God. 3.2.33 or 23. It is not a requirement or a meritorious condition of salvation. It's not something that God requires of us in order to give us salvation. It's the gift of salvation. It's a gift, principal work of the Holy Spirit, which brings to us this gift of God. Calvin says that Faith is not a meritorious condition, but the instrumental cause of salvation. It's the instrument that the Spirit uses by which the gift of salvation is given to us. 3.14 Teachers would shout to no effect if Christ himself, inner schoolmaster, did not by his spirit draw to himself those given to him by the Father. And Calvin quotes uh, Augustine in 3.2.35, Our Savior, to teach us that belief comes as a gift and not from merit, says, No one comes to me unless my Father draws him.
So we've taken apart then uh, Calvin's definition of firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit, to get uh, Calvin's um, definition of faith. We'll come um, next time uh, to Calvin's treatment of repentance. And uh, we'll look and see why he moves first before he comes to justification to repentance, which is a word that he uses for regeneration or for uh, living the Christian life. So be alert to that uh, as you read. And uh, we'll look uh, at Calvin's uh, treatment of repentance. In fact, um, we'll spend... I think two two classes on that topic repentance and the Christian life because three six through ten uh, is a, a lovely section one of the most beloved sections of the institutes uh, Calvin's golden booklet of the Christian life it's sometimes called sometimes printed separately and um, has been uh, used by Christians uh, for centuries now as a practical description of what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. So uh, two uh, classes on uh, repentance, and uh, then we'll come uh, to justification and Christian freedom. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.